Welcome to CTL Connections Short Bites, a series of interviews with senior engineering leaders. I'm your host, Peter Bell. The future's here. It's just not evenly distributed. At CTL Connection, we try to solve that by identifying, curating, and distributing the latest tools and techniques for more effectively building and managing an engineering team. Join our community at ctlconnection.com. I'd like to take a moment to thank our partners. Code Climate is our global sponsor. Code Climate Velocity helps CTOs, VPEs, and directors at companies like Slack, Gusto, and Pizza Hut align initiatives with strategic priorities, accelerate software delivery, and drive continuous improvement. I'd also like to thank Amazon Web Services and Carrot, our sustaining partners. I'd also like to take a moment to introduce our Short Bytes partner, Cloud Zero. You're spending a ton of money on the cloud, so shouldn't you know exactly what you're spending it on? Cloud Zero will help you organize and understand your cloud spend better than anyone else out there. You'll get visibility without the typical pitfalls of legacy cloud cost management tools like endless tagging or clunky Kubernetes support. With Cloud Zero, you can optimize your unit economics, decentralize cost intelligence to engineering, and create a shared language between finance and technical teams. You'll be able to answer questions like, who are my most expensive customers? How much does this specific feature cost our business? What is the cost impact of re-architecting this application? Join companies like Drift, Rapid7, and SeatGeek by visiting cloudzero.com slash ctlconnection to get started. Again, please visit cloudzero.com slash ctlconnection to get started today. Today, I'm speaking with Gary Davis, Diversity Talent Acquisition Lead, Digital Media at Adobe. Gary, thanks so much for taking the time to talk. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really looking forward to this. So I'd love to, one of the challenges that especially everyone's having a hard time attracting talent now, especially in the, the, the software development world. But one of the, the big challenges I see is that often it can be hard to balance the fact that you need to double your engineering team in the next 18 months. Mm-hmm. With, and you've got to hit your, your not just your hiring milestones, but also your feature development milestones. But at the same time, mm-hmm. you don't want to end up with a bunch of young white dudes from Stanford. Mm-hmm. How do you start to think, like, if you maybe don't have a whole bunch of experience, how do you start to think about evaluating your hiring process to make sure that you can kind of balance diversity mm-hmm. with actually getting the, the the talent you need to skill your organization? Yeah, and I think you actually kind of answer part of the question. So it's being able to kind of observe what does what do the demographics of your workforce actually currently look like? If you are finding young white men that come from Stanford, I think in a lot of ways that is one of the first parts of the answer. And so I think the first thing we need to understand is to that same point, like who exactly who exactly is in the room and who's not in the room? And how are our mindsets around what quote unquote qualified looks like? How is that actually interfering with our ability to design really equitable processes? And so I always tell folks like you have to be able to pay attention to where your candidates are coming from. So in the recruiting world, we talk about source. So literally um, when they submitted that application, um, was it via LinkedIn? Was it via referral? Was it on your website? So on and so forth. But I think oftentimes um, we go a little bit further there and we make assumptions that things like seeing Stanford on a resume um, will pretty much tell you everything that you need to know about a candidate. And the reality is that that's just not the case. So folks have talked a lot about how education, um, years of experience, um, actually are not even the best, most effective predictors of actual job performance. And so if I'm going to be designing a process where I am identifying the right competencies or skill sets that are required for my business, and then also building a plan out where I can actually like find individuals that match or align with that uh, criteria, 
if I'm doing all that in advance and I'm being really sensitive and intentional about where I decide to look, um, I think that actually can play a part. The answer, but like a spoiler is like, it's not all at Stanford, love Stanford University. Um, But there are so many people, many of whom who do not have college degrees, who have access to the same level of content. So they're able to either learn on their own, complete community college, go through talent development organizations like tech boot camps or even nonprofit workforce development companies. Um, So this definition of talent and this definition of qualified, I think, needs to be expanded and helps. And I think it also help can help us understand what are the things that we tangibly can do differently. That's amazing. So, so let's dig into some of that. So as you said, it's not just like, oh, they worked at Netflix or they um, graduated from Stanford. Therefore we should, we should be filtering for that. Mm -hmm. Uh, What do we replace those proxies with that will do a better job of filtering for people who actually have the competencies required to succeed on our teams? Yeah, I think it goes back to this idea of like, what exactly are the competencies that we're looking for and us not actually conflating those with a particular credential. And so I think oftentimes about folks who are software engineering or trying to get break into the product world. And we talk a lot about how there is a tech talent shortage gap, um, meaning that there are more roles coming out down the pike or even those that are presently available that are going unfilled because we assume and conflate things like degree as an indicator of actual ability or relative intelligence. Whereas the reality is if we took a more skills-based approach, so we're literally finding people who got training either on their own dime or their own accord um, in software engineering, in product, in data science, et cetera, then we can actually sort of meet people where they are. So like give them the actual opportunity to perform in assessments. Um, so we talk about how work sample tests in the research world are used as like the number one predictor of job performance. Um, give folks the opportunity to do the thing that you're potentially going to be asking them to, to do with that actually got the role instead of using whether or not they worked at Netflix as a real indicator. I think oftentimes we do a lot of uh, pre-vetting. So we'll look at where a person previously worked. We look at where they went to school or if they went to school. And in a lot of cases, we'll really rely upon like the people that were responsible for either recruiting or admitting them in the previous role that they were in. So if it's a Stanford grad, we're going to trust that the recruiting team or the admissions team at Stanford thought that they were capable or qualified. If it's Netflix, if it's Google, if it's Meta, we'll do the same thing. And so I think we have to be able to kind of get to the point where if we're hiring people to do jobs, jobs that require skills, um, we have to recognize that folks can acquire skills in really different ways or really unique ways that don't necessarily satisfy the norm that we're most comfortable with. That makes perfect sense. Now, um, I, I come across two pushbacks around the work sample. I, I think a lot of people agree, like, if you want to tell whether somebody can program in Python, get them to write some code in Python is probably a good way to determine that. And and that makes sense. One piece of pushback is I think it sometimes is a little harder for more senior engineers in terms of getting them to make the commitment. And then the other is in terms of uh, equity, there is a challenge in the if you have too large a work sample and you're applying to too many different companies, people who have other responsibilities and other things going on in their lives just don't have the time to do free work for all these companies. Mm-hmm. Uh, how do you think about the scope of the work sample and or any any good practices to to avoid the the kind of disequity of making it only for people who've got a whole bunch of free times in the evening? 
Yeah, I mean, I love work sample tests. I, I just, I love them. I've written a few. I've obviously taken several. And I think it's really good to just kind of give me insight into what is it that I would do if I'm actually in this position. And so let's let's be honest. People have resources to either learn how to be master interviewers. So like literally can just sort of like talk the talk. But I think an a, a, a exercise or a sample test or what have you gives you the opportunity to see, can they actually walk the walk as well? Can they actually do the thing? And I know that there's oftentimes this tension of like, well, we don't necessarily want folks to do free work. It doesn't mean that they need to like completely up in all the code that's available at the company today. Maybe give them a small project or maybe ask for a sample of something that they've already completed. Um, and then you figure out what exactly it is you're going to use to be able to evaluate that submission. I think where we struggle, though, is that we will look at something and we will base it or base ourselves against the submission. And what I mean by that is if I have an engineering degree from Stanford, we're going to continue with the Stanford theme. Um, but I'm sorry, looking Stanford. at someone that, I'm sorry. Sorry, Stanford. <laughs> I feel like we're batching. <laughs> no shade against Stanford. I, I love Stanford. But um, I, I think there are other software engineers, other folks within the space that got training from other institutions um, or, again, potentially just learned it on their own. But I think what happens is if a Stanford engineer is writing a coding assessment, that's a particular standard, whether it's the right standard or the wrong standard really will just kind of depend. But how exactly is that going to be equitable if a person that is self-taught or a person that completed community college or a person that um, acquired that level of knowledge or skill from a coding boot camp? Um, so already we're kind of canceling out people that we think should be as quote unquote capable or smart as we are. When in the reality is we also want to create an environment where folks of different perspectives, different backgrounds, we talk about diversity of thought all the time and diversity of experience, um, bringing people in with their own unique vantage points to also be able to contribute. So it, it's not enough just to say like, hey, we either do want to do this or we don't want to do it. Um, but we also need to be really intentional about like who is developing the assessment, who's evaluating the assessment, and what's the same objective criteria they're using with every piece of evidence that they look at. Right. It's so important to have rubric-based assessments where you can actually say in advance, these are the things we will use to determine whether or not somebody's passed, failed, or, or whatever. What do you typically see as a good scope for a work sample? Because it wants to be big enough that you can see somebody's effort, but again, mm -hmm. respectful of their time, given that you're not necessarily paying them for the time. Yeah, I mean, I think the best work samples to me are those where there is no right or wrong answer. And what I mean by that is I want to actually be able to gauge, like, how do you think? So if I were to give you this assignment six months from now, if I were to you know, advance and give you an offer and hire you, I want to be able to see, based upon the limited context that you have today, whether it's something that you have either had no experience in before or something you have you know, several years of experience or background in, I want to be able to understand what does your thought process look like? I want you to be able to talk me through what the assumptions that you used when sort of delivering the actual final product. Because again, these are all behaviors that you would do in the office anyway, when you're actually in the role. So there's no decision that I think is ever made that does not include, at least on some level, some type of an assumption. But I think being able to sort of name that as you are a candidate and give your hiring manager the opportunity to say, well, they were strong in this particular area, maybe not as strong in this one. So when I think about onboarding or if I were to move forward with that candidate, I want to be able to know how do I design an onboarding and a management approach or style that really matches where that person is? Because no candidate is going to have everything all the way 100% figured out. If that were the case, then you know there would not be any unemployment in this country or any country. And so I think we have to really be honest and say there's nothing wrong with a hiring exercise or some type of sample test. 
Now, you can stagger that based upon the level within the organization. So I wouldn't necessarily give um, an entry-level candidate something that will require three days of work um, that may be more appropriate for folks that are a bit more senior. But I think it's a matter, as we've been talking about, sort of aligning on what are the competencies that we want to attest for or test for um, throughout this particular work sample? And then how exactly to this point around setting up the rubric, do we know that we're evaluating them consistently and fairly against the same criteria? That makes sense. That That's great. It seems to me in the interviewing process that there are, there are two places where companies often fall down. The one is exactly what you've nailed. It's like, oh, we're just going to use Netflix or Stanford as a proxy. We're only going to recruit from that pool, which, by the way, is really expensive because everyone else is recruiting from that pool. Get better talent at a lower cost. Like, There's good business reasons to get away from that. The, the second thing I see, though, is in the is in not having a sufficiently rigorous rubric around culture to understand mm-hmm. what, because it is perfect. I think it's perfectly appropriate to filter people based on culture. If you're yep. in a very early stage startup and someone has no tolerance for risk, you mm-hmm. and they are going to be unhappy. Yep. Uh, but just the fact that they don't support the same football team or like drinking alcohol every night is probably not a good reason not to hire someone, even though they might not feel naively like a culture mm-hmm. fit, if that's what a bunch of the rest of you do. Mm-hmm. How do you think about designing a rubric that really allows for culture ad rather than limiting to culture fit? Yeah, I think it's interesting because we've been having this conversation about culture fit for years now. And when I hear that phrase, I literally just start cringing because I'm like, well, what, what exactly does that mean? Like, how exactly am I determining whether or not a person is a fit um, or potentially a misfit? And I think Everyone that interviews at a company has the potential to do both. Either they have the potential to fit in or they have the potential to add and change things around. But I think in most cases, we don't necessarily want folks that are going to ruffle our feathers or folks that will make us uncomfortable. And oftentimes, I think with this idea of culture fit, it really, for me, stems to this larger concept of what we call affinity bias. So like us as human beings wanting and oftentimes feeling more comfortable around other folks that are just like us, whether they look like us, um, come from similar areas, uh, similar schools, et cetera. But I think on the flip side of that, if we like folks that are just like us, we probably won't like folks that are not like us. And so I think that level of aversion can show up from cross lines of race. So maybe we have an environment where there's only one singular uh, racial group, maybe potentially gender, age, um, education or experience level. And so I think what happens for me is what I want to talk about, how do we flip toward more culture ad? Let's ask questions again that really speak to behavioral um, components. Let's talk about When did you demonstrate a time that either aligns with cultural values that we all can agree upon? But then also, what do you see about our culture that you don't like? And having the psychological safety to be able to describe and disclose that as when you are a candidate, potentially even when you actually start working. So I would say that, you know, this idea of culture fit is a joke Uh, (laughs) because it literally just means like we want people that we want to be able to like have uh, a beer with, so on and so forth. Um, But that's actually not why we're hiring them. We're not necessarily looking for people that will be sycophants. We're looking for people that are going to be leaders. And so I think it's important that we just kind of push ourselves. And and I get it to an extent. You know, we live in a really segregated country still, Um, obviously now by choice, since it's not necessarily legally supported anymore. But um, I think that level of segregation is what keeps our workplaces very different because many of us don't have the opportunity to intimately engage with folks that do not look like us. Amazing. Thank you, Gary. 
Um, you, you talked about looking for, so, so I, I'd love to dig into that sourcing. Um, I, another one of the kind of like uh, things that I feel like needs to be knocked down is it's like, oh, you know, we're not getting enough diverse candidates mm-hmm. and we still have to fill the roles. So we, we're just, mm-hmm. just going where they are. Can you, you talk a little bit about some of the things that a company could do to maybe broaden the, the diversity of their applicant pool from a sourcing yeah, perspective? Yeah, for sure. For sure. So let's, let's stick on the, um, Talking, uh, kind of being shady to Stanford piece. Um, let, let's let's think let's about this. On again. <laughs> I hope there are no Stanford alum in the audience that are just uh, like, no, I, I, what is this person talking about? Um, but what I will say is that we talk about data a lot within the recruiting world, and we talk about data a lot in the business, in just across every business um, every day. There's a lot of available data out there that will show you the demographics of certain regional areas or certain markets, and even potentially also certain institutions. And so when we talk about diversifying that pipeline, if we're going to, let's say, continue to stick with universities, let's look at, again, publicly available information on the Department of Education's website. What do the demographics of these institutions look like? So if I only wanted to recruit from Stanford, uh, or if I only wanted to recruit from the University of Pennsylvania or Harvard, et cetera, what are the odds that I will find someone from a historically excluded group? And for the folks that may not be familiar with that language, when I say historically excluded, I mean people that identify as Black, Hispanic or Latinx, um, women, people with disabilities, veterans, so on and so forth. Um, But let's actually look at the demographics of these schools to basically be able to understand what are our odds of being able to find someone um, from one of the groups that I just named. But the reality is, if that's going to be the only thing that we're going to focus on, uniquely targeting those specific institutions, recognize that other, your competitors and other employers are also targeting those folks. So it just becomes that much more difficult to be able to find folks. And so sticking with this theme of skills-based hiring and focusing, basing basing your decisions against uh, actual competencies, let's pay attention to the fact that there are over 70 million people in the United States alone who are skilled through what we call alternative routes. So folks that actually have the training, have the expertise, have even the backgrounds, but they may lack that actual um, academic credential, but they may be licensed in other arenas. So whether they have a CompTIA certification, maybe they're certified in AWS or Salesforce um, or Google technology, et cetera. And so I think it's important to kind of be able to understand and measure where are we recruiting from today? What are the implications of continuing those relationships and maybe being able to identify other schools um, that have a much more diverse slate of, of potential candidates. I think on the flip side, there's some more tact- tactical things I think can be done. One of which is really playing around with how we write job descriptions or position descriptions. You know, I, I look at job descriptions all the time, particularly for um, roles in the people space, director of DEI positions, et cetera. And you would not believe the amount of times I'm looked at job descriptions and will walk away not completely knowing what the person will do. Um, And also still seeing that there's like an extreme laundry list of all these different requirements and expectations. And I look at them and I say, like, well, what you all have laid out actually seems to really align with like what the chief people officer or chief HR officer would do. So how is this exactly appropriate? So I think with that, we have to really pay attention to the language that we put in those job descriptions. Believe it or not, it actually does influence who applies for the role. Um, folks have perhaps heard this Hewlett Packard um, anecdotal story that says women only apply for positions if they meet 100% of the qualifications. Well, that's actually not true. Um, there's actually been a follow-up study through Harvard Business Review where they talk about how 
men and women both, when they don't apply for a position, it's because they see themselves that the requirements on that position description um, are mandatory, they're required, they're essential. And if they don't have those, they're not going to waste their time. And so I think if there are ways that we can just start focusing on, like, how do we market these roles or these opportunities um, that really focus on assets and really focus on outcomes. So instead of saying you need a bachelor's degree or you need a master's degree, talk about how you'll use whatever skills that you think come with those particular credentials um, to hit an outcome within the first 90 days or 180 days, et cetera. And I think lastly, it's paying attention to what is working. So if you do have a really strong legacy of using tools like LinkedIn Recruiter to source talent, so like you're going on the back end, you're looking for people in a specific market, um, you want folks that, let's say, are software engineers, the default probably will not include many diverse faces. Um, and so you can use specific Boolean key filters or search words or tags that still, again, align with what you need for the position, but that's maybe targeting people based upon different affinity groups. So whether it's a fraternity or a sorority or a civic association, um, I think it's really important to get creative and understand like what already seems to be working. I think when companies kind of do a complete 180 and do something different, but it doesn't necessarily like yield the results in the short term, they kind of like go away from it and go back to the thing that they were previously doing. So I would say it's really getting creative and testing out. And it will take you some time and a lot of trial and error to gauge what's the right tool or mechanism for us to diversify our pipelines today. But let's also not be married to that for the rest of time. That all makes sense. And 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 it's so much it's so important to to do a better job of improving the diversity at the top of the pipeline. That said, I also see a lot of companies, especially if they're just early in their DEI initiatives, that then have trouble attracting and retaining uh talent that brings diversity in, in different ways. So mm-hmm. what are what are some of the other gotchas you see that there's obviously the job description, even the stupid stuff like ninja or rock star? No, we're not going to be cutting people up. We're not going to be shredding on stage. We're actually going to be writing code, right? That's probably exclusionary in a bunch of ways. It's it's probably not the best thing to do. What about the, I, I also love the idea of rubric-based interviewing. That all makes sense. Are there some other things that you see people doing wrong that is just more likely to exclude uh, diverse candidates from deciding mm-hmm. to to accept a job someplace? Yeah, I think the thing that we don't do that I would urgently recommend that everyone start doing is to pay attention to just your job description as well as the job application itself. So I won't go back into all of what we've been talking about with JDs, but I think when folks are asking questions like address and, you know, criminal background or history or like all these what we call like knockout questions, it's like, well, what's really the utility of posing these particular questions? So let's stick with criminal history or background for a second. You know, depending on the market, like it may actually be inappropriate for you to ask those types of questions. But how does that actual information influence um, whether or not a person is going to be a software engineer or not? Right. So there, there are like all these different components um, that I think we need to begin to start paying a little bit more attention to. I think a lot of how we recruit today or a lot of how we approach recruiting and hiring is extremely antiquated. Um, And I think on the flip side, other things like, well, are we using what we call a structured interview process? So when I say structure, I mean one that is 
well thought out in advance. We define what good looks like. Um, and we pretty much sticking with this idea of using a rubric, basically measure folks against preset, predetermined qualifications and criteria. And we ask the same questions in the exact same order. Um, I oftentimes find folks are like, well, structured interviews kind of get in the way of us being able to like establish connections with folks. Like, I understand that, but I think there's a way to do both. So, you know, you starting off your interview talking about your day, um, pretty much kind of like dropping breadcrumbs to give people the opportunity to say like, oh, or I know this person or I also live in this area, um, really kind of sets you up to believe that this person, again, is probably going to be like you. So you may actually be a little bit more lenient in your um, actual interview of that candidate. And I think one big one that we don't talk a lot about is publishing the compensation directly on the job description. Yes. Um, that, that is a huge one that I'm excited that um, states like Colorado and I think New York is also going to be rolling this out in the next couple of months. Um, really just requiring folks to include what your pay expectations will look like up front. You know, oftentimes when we are on the job search or uh, we're a recruiter. There's always this weird dance that I think that we play. And usually the first person who takes the first move loses. And so, you know, when I talk about transparency, I think it's important just to sell, tell folks, here's where we are with this position. You use this to determine if this makes the right sense for you, your family, whatever your situation looks like. Um, and then maybe if you want to go a little bit deeper, sort of underscoring, like, here's how we came to this number. So I always ask the question of, well, what or how do we benchmark this? How do we arrive at this number? What benchmarking did we do? What factors does it sort of constitute? Because when we talk about pay equity, women's um, equal pay day just passed recently. And so those numbers are drastically staggering, uh, particularly across lines of, of race and color. And so I think if we really want to get to an environment where we're talking about like a truly inclusive, equitable process that attracts diversity and promotes it and, and, and affirms it and celebrates it, there's some real tactical things I think we just need to abandon that, frankly, they've been in place for so long that they actually are preserving um, the way that our workforce presently looks. Gary, unfortunately, we're out of time, but thank you so much for taking the time to share your wisdom today. Of course. Of course. Thank you for having me. I love these talks. I love chatting with folks about these things. Mm-hmm.